The following is an audio sermon from Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa. For more free audio content, search Sacred City Church in your iTunes store. All right, so far in this book of Ephesians, now listen, you guys should be pretty, pretty freaking encouraged right now, okay? Because we just plowed through one chapter of the Bible, baby. I don't know how long it took us, but we're in chapter two, okay? So, so far in this letter to uh, the Ephesians, uh, this is crazy. Paul has not given us any imperatives, okay? When you're reading the Bible, there's two things. There's indicatives and there's imperatives. And indicatives is just something that's been done. It's just absolute fact. It's maybe something God has done. Imperatives are something you need to go and do. Now, most of us, if you're like me, if you're a good little legalist and you grew up as a firstborn wanting to do the right thing and wanting to be the guy on top and wanting just to you know, follow the line and do what's right, then you, look, you read the Bible looking for imperatives. What does he want me to do? What should I do about this? What should I do? How should I raise my kids? How should I respond to my wife? How should I serve? How should I love? How should I be a good guy? Right? Those are imperatives. Now, so far, we've been through one whole book of the Bible, one whole book of Ephesians, and Paul has not given us one imperative. He's not told us one thing to do. This is important because as we get into the later books, basically, I'm going to tell you this right up front, Paul spends about three chapters giving nothing but, imper- or nothing but indicatives, then he spends about three chapters saying, because Christ has done this, we should do this. Because Christ has done all these things, this is how your life should be shaped. And he goes into talking about how husbands love wives and wives love husbands, how we raise kids, uh, what we should be teaching our kids, how should we teach, be teaching our kids to submit. He goes on to talk about spiritual warfare. He goes and talks about prayer. He talks about um, how we should be working and how we should treat our bosses. Paul goes into a, and a lot of, so if you like the practical stuff, just tell me something to do. That's coming in the last three chapters, but it's got, if you're going to be gospel-centered, you've got to get the in, indicatives of the first three chapters, because what Christ has done, we are now enabled to do these things, okay? So we're going to get into that a little bit. He's going to give you a little microcosm of that in these 10 verses here in chapter 2. But so far in chapter 1, Paul's focused on what God has done for us in Jesus, right? He's, he's given these identity-shaping declarations. He said, you've been chosen, you've been adopted, you've been forgiven, you are free, you've been lavished, uh, love and grace have been lavished upon you, you've been, your past has been forgotten, your future has been carved out, you've got a destiny, and you've got new power for life in the Holy Spirit. Paul prays in 15 through 23 that we studied the last two weeks, he prays that we would have eyes to see all of this. Say eyes. Say eyes to see. As we see it, listen, as we see what Christ has done and what God has done in chapter 1, as we see it, our identities are formed. As we see it, say it again, as I see it. Paul wants us to see who we are. He wants us to know our identity. He's been trying to show us, now listen right here, that we need to stop trying to achieve an identity through our works, through our accomplishments, through our possessions, through our promotions, and we need to receive an identity based on Christ's work for us, okay? We need to receive, okay, this is big, this is big here, guys, all right, this is big here, so we need to work through this. Now, I know, you know, our heads are down and we're like, yeah, 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 we need to receive, that sounds good, what Christ has done, chosen, adopted, forgiven, free, yeah, 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 yeah. But Paul takes this concept in chapter 1, all right, and he illustrates them for us. He's about to give us an illustration of our lives before Christ and the lives of our friends and family who are outside of Christ right now. He's about to give us an illustration of that. And this is going to make us angry. This is going to upset us tonight. This is going to upset us, but let me show you why you need To hear it, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Right after Acts, Romans chapter 1, Paul's epistle to the Romans. Uh, One of the, the, I mean, the most dense theological works in all the New Testament. Um, This this Martin Luther got saved reading this. We're up there. When you say, when you're at Romans chapter 1, verse 16, say there. All right, look at this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God for salvation. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. <clears throat> Listen, this scripture is, is very important. The gospel is the power that saves us. The gospel is the power that changes us. The gospel is the power that is still at work in us. The gospel is the power that grows churches. The gospel is the power that multiplies missional communities. The gospel is the power that does the real work in your heart. The gospel is that power. But listen, and what, what is gospel? Does anybody know what gospel means? Good news, right? It means good news. It means good news. But now listen, inside this statement... Inside this statement is really bad news. Inside this statement is really bad news. So I want us to know the gospel, because if you don't know the gospel, you don't have power. If you don't know the gospel, you can't be saved. If you don't know the gospel, hell will be your home for eternity if you don't know the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, you'll be continually serving idols. What does that mean? That means you, you will need people's approval. You can't live without the approval of people. You're all, you, I mean, you're a slave to the opinions and the ideas and the, the, the need of other people. You need other people. You'd be a slave to that. The gospel sets you free from that. The gospel sets you free from the fear of failure. The gospel sets you free from those things. Now, inside this good news are some really bad news. Uh, if you're thinking, man, you might say, the gospel saves us from what? It's the good news for salvation. Well, that hold on, stop. Salvation from what? Salvation for what? what? What the heck? Who needs salvation? There's some really bad news inherent in that declaration of good news. And we need to see that tonight. If Doc, if Doc walked up to you and put his arm around you and said, Hey man, Sam, you don't have cancer, buddy. Sam's probably like, thanks, Doc, I guess, right? Like, uh, a little awkward. I know, right? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I know, I don't, I don't think, I didn't think I did. It's pretty awkward, right? It's not really good news for Sam. It's not really good news for Sam. But if Sam, a week before, went to Doc and said, man, I'm having some stomach pains. I don't know what's going on. Doc does the whatever, all, takes all these tests, and he's like, you know what? This is really bad. I think this might be cancer, and... It's look, these aren't looking, it's not looking too well. And I, I think, dude, I think, I think you might have cancer, right? And then a week later, he walks up to Sam and says, Sam, you don't have cancer, buddy. Did that change that? Do you think it's, it's going to change his response a little bit? It's not just good news, it's freaking great news now, right? Yes, what I thought, okay, I had this stomach pain, I thought it was cancer. All week long, I've been contemplating my existence and contemplating what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to my family, and what's going to happen to my fiance. And all of a sudden, one statement by Doc, all of a sudden, because it had context of a really bad news, now the good news is even better. Do you see that? Bad news, you need bad news to get good news. Now, the American church, if you've grown up in the past decade, which most of you have been and you've been to church, we forgot about the bad news. And we come, you come into service and all we sing about is God's love and all we sing about is God's grace. And all we, Grace for what? What do I need grace for? I'm a pretty good guy. God should, he should draft me. I'm pretty smart and pretty witty, you know, and I've got a great family. I'm on his A-team. He needs me. God needs me. Thanks for the grace. Thanks for the love. I have no context of what is really going on. I have no context of really, really, really bad news. All right? So this is Paul. Paul, the grace preacher. Okay? The grace preacher. The man who knows about grace. He knows about the gospel. And he builds this argument in, in chapter 1. This huge doxology of praise. This two long, really long sentences. And now he says, now, <clears throat> because you might get mixed up in all my theological terms, now I'm going to give you a word picture. Now I'm going to give you an illustration of what this looks like. So you understand the gospel. I got, you've got to know context here. Okay? <clears throat> so this is what he's going to show us. Paul in chapter 2 is about to show us this. The good news of the gospel will not make sense and it will not change your life 
unless you understand the bad news. Say bad news. Listen, you've, we've got to get the bad news. If the gospel's not growing in your heart right now, if you're not becoming more and more infatuated with the love of Jesus, if you're not overcoming the idols in your life, overcoming the addictions in your life, overcoming the, the, the sin struggles in your life, if you're not making steps forward, it might be because you don't really know the bad news. You don't really understand the bad news. So let's recall real quick. We're going to do a quick biblical theology lesson right here. Story of God through, the, through missional communities, what, be, what we've been going through. Creation, right? In the beginning, God. God existed before anything. He was the uncreated creator. He creates everything good, right? Except for man. He said, man was, man was alone. That ain't good. I'm going to get him a woman. Okay, now that's good, right? So we existed in heaven. We get to walk with God. We get to talk with God. We live in communion with God. And I mean, we're naked and not ashamed. They're married. This is good, right? This is good, 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 good. Talking with God, naked, wife, husband, money. What else can you ask? Fruit on the tree, this is heaven, all right? This is heaven. I mean, bacon wasn't invented yet, so maybe, you know, it, it might have been lacking one thing. But other than that, you know, it's, it's money, all right? Then what happens? Satan enters the picture. Fallen angel takes the form of a snake, enters into the garden. He starts whispering to Adam and Eve, you could be your own God. Starts whispering to Adam and Eve, does God really love you? Did God really say that? He starts twisting these things. And basically the whole temptation is this. You can be God and determine right and wrong. Who's to say God makes right and wrong? You can make right and wrong. You can decide for yourself if that's good or that's bad. Adam and Eve, we know what happens. They sin. They choose to define themselves outside of their identity in Christ, outside of their identity in God. They choose to define themselves on their own. I want to be autonomous. I want to do my own thing. I want to worship my own way. I want to determine what's right and what's wrong. And then what happens? Creation fractures. Everything goes bad, right? Animals start turning on each other. All of a sudden, they realize they're naked. Now they're ashamed. There's, there's fear in relationship between God. Now they're hiding from God where they used to walk openly and have communion with Him. Now they're diving behind the bushes. They're hiding behind the bushes from each other. So there's, there's fracture in the relationship in the home. The husband and wife are now fractured. They're at odds with each other. She wants to rule over him. There's fighting in the home. Not mutual submission and love like there was in the Trinity and like there was between them before. So everything goes bad, right? Everything goes bad. Sin, this is what the Bible says. Sin entered the picture, okay? Sin Entered the picture. Now look, we're in Romans chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 18. <clears throat> so right after he talks about the gospel, 18, look at this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Look at this right here. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Say suppress the truth. Okay. We have a natural tendency, because of the fall, to suppress the truth. We have a natural tendency, because of the fall, to suppress the truth. This doctrine, this is so important tonight, I'm going to yell if I have to yell to wake people up, but this is so important. This is called the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin. We say this, I have a desire to suppress the truth. Now, what the heck? Why would you want to suppress the truth? Why would you want to suppress it? What truth are we trying to suppress? Why would I want to suppress truth? doesn't make sense. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I had to build that because there's some of you in, tonight, in here tonight. You are going to try to suppress this truth. You're going to try to resist this. I don't want this to be true in my flesh. Neither do you. Okay? Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I like Paul because Paul, is the, he's the grace preacher, right? He's the lovey-dovey, you know, he, he's that guy, but he's not pulling punches. He's not pulling any punches here. He's not sugarcoating this at all. This is what he says about us. Look, to, look at the guy next to you and say, this is what he says about you. Okay, there, there. Look at this. Verse 1. And you were dead Wow, harsh. You were dead in the trespasses and sins 
in which you once walked. This is a perfect picture of the life lived outside of Christ. We were dead to God. We didn't want anything to do with Him. We were corpses in our trespasses and sin. And I gotta, I gotta let this sit in because we've heard, we maybe some of us have kind of heard this enough that we, we kind of think, well, it wasn't that, you know, maybe he's just using a metaphor. He's just kind of overstating something. You know, those preachers, they just kind of say something. Oh, I didn't really mean that. I was just kind of overstepping my bounds. This is what Paul says about you and me, outside of Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Absolutely dead, worthless, lifeless, dead to God. Now listen, we were all, now you might be thinking, well, that's because Adam and sin, you know, original sin, that's what I do, you know. No, 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 listen. We were all born with original sin, but Paul takes that farther here. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, trespasses and sins, that's basically sins of omission and sins of commission. All of us, we respond to God. We respond, we want to suppress the truth, and we respond in two ways. Number one, you're a rebel. You say, F God, I don't want to have anything to do with him. I'll make my own rules. I'll do my own thing. Or you're a sufferer, or, or, or you're a complainer, or you're, oh, pity party, woe is me. Right, that's, how we, that's kind of how we respond typically to God. No matter how great, now listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Absolutely dead. That means, listen, if, if you thought you were spiritual and you came searching after God, you were dead. God came after you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. No matter how great your upbringing, no matter how terrible your childhood was, you are still, this is, you're going to hate me, you're going to want to resist this. I'm just going to tell you, you're going to want to resist what I'm about to say. You're going to want to resist this. No matter how great or terrible your upbringing has been, you are still accountable for your own sins. Uh-oh. This is where we start to get hot and bothered, right? Uh-uh, uh-uh, it ain't my fault. My dad was a jerk. My mom slept around. I didn't have a godly role model. I'm not dead. I'm just real sick. I've got excuses, and they're good ones. I'm not dead. I'm just wounded. I don't need saved. I just need some help. I don't need to hear all this bad news. Just tell me that I'm loved, and let's blame my sin on my environment or my upbringing or my context. I don't want to hear the bad news about my sin. Just love me, pet me, and tell me it's all going to be all right. Right? Self-esteem. Self-esteem, I can do this. Just tell me I can do it, and I'm going to go out there and do it. Listen, guys, this is reality. This is what God says about us. I'm going to have to make this real. This is what God says about your children. They are dead right now in their trespasses. And they're walking, it says. They're walking. They're dead men walking. Some of us in this room, if you are outside of Christ, you are dead men walking. That's scary. Spiritually cut off from Christ. Spiritually cut off from your creator. You are dead to him. You can't hear his voice. You can't hear him speaking. You can dumbly see creation and kind of say, I think there's a God out there, Romans tells us. But you are cut off from his love. You are cut off from his spirit at work in you. You are dead. This is reality. We are people who in our flesh, we suppress this truth. We, we don't want to know this bad news. We don't want people to really know the truth about my sin, right? We want to call them mistakes or issues or phobias or even problems, but we don't want to call them sin. But Paul says, outside of Christ... We are dead men walking. So how does a dead man walk? Let's keep looking. Let's keep reading here. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. So number one, that's the way you walk. When you're a dead man walking, you're blind. You're following the course of this world. Jesus called the Pharisees the blind leading the blind. 
When you're outside of Christ, you're just doing what everybody else is. What do you mean? I'm just trying to make a living, man. What are you trying to, what do you mean? I'm just trying to make a living. I'm just trying to raise good kids. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get a little bit more than my neighbor. That's all I'm trying to do. Following the ways of the world. What's that look like? Just turn on reality, reality television. That's what that looks like. Following the ways of the world. I got to have those jeans. I got to have that car. I got to have that next job. I can't have kids. That would cramp my style. I can't have kids. That's a nuisance to me. I got a certain tax bracket I got to reach to. That's more important than what is it, fruitful and multiply stuff. That's archaic, man. I don't want to hear any of that. I want to whatever. I want to escalate. Can't get an escalate. You can't fit four kids in the back of an escalate. You might be able to. I don't know. <clears throat> Following the course of this world. And this is the scary thing, guys. This is, what's, this is what scares me. Dead people don't know they're dead. And they're holding hands with other dead people. And they're skipping along saying, isn't this fun? Isn't this fun? Isn't this fun? And they're poking fun at some of us who have been made alive and we're not living and we're, we're sacrificing some of our stuff. We're not getting great paying jobs because we want to serve our community. We want to love. We want to spend two, three nights a week with our missional community and serving people. So we look crazy to people. That's why Paul said the message of the cross is foolishness. Why would you lay your life down for somebody? Leading atheists are coming out right now with things they call the selfish gene, and they say it's biological, and it's, it's something that's built into, um, that's, it, it's built into evolution, that, the, that we should be selfish. It, it, it promotes us. It, it lets us, you know, the survival of the fittest. It's promoting selfishness. And when they see us laying down our lives for people, they look and they say, it's foolish, absolutely foolish. Because the way of Christ is contrary to the way of the world. Are you more worried about getting rich or following Christ? Are you more worried about being comfortable in your lazy boy at home or following Christ? If you haven't found out, you will really soon. Living in community is tough. People always have problems. They always have issues. And when you're in community, you know them. And they know yours. And it's going to be really tempting to say, no, 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 no. I can't do this family stuff. I like that individual religion. I like that stuff where I could go and I could just push everybody away and I could show up on Sunday and then I could go back home and just turn on TV. And it's just me and TV. I like that religion better. I don't like this in-community, on-mission stuff where everybody knows your business. You need people to know your business. I pray. This is the thing. Dead men don't know they're dead. If I'm walking in the way of the world, I pray somebody in my missional community loves me enough to say, brother, you're following dead people right now. You're following dead people. You can go down there? You can go do, you're going to do that? Come on. What's the way of Christ? What's the gospel say? What's the truth? Who have you been made into? What's your identity? What's Christ done for you? That's the kind of stuff I want. Not skipping through the tulips on my way to hell with a bunch of dead people. Mm. <sighs> Following the, oh, this is, this, what Justin, this, Paul, what are you doing? This does not go over in our culture. In the way which you, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What's he saying? He's saying this. Not only are you skipping through the tulips here, holding hands on your, I mean, dead men walking, you're following Satan. You're following Satan. Someone once said to me, Justin, it seems like when I came to Christ that I got all these new problems. Everything was kind of easy before I came to Christ. I woke up, I went to work, I had a few beers, I passed out, went to bed, it was easy. Now that I come to Christ, I got all these new issues coming up. I got to learn how to be patient with people. I'm in community. This is frustrating. Yes, it is. Because we live in a war zone. We live in a war zone. We have an enemy named Satan who's warring against Christ, who's warring against God, and we should be reminded of this in a, on a daily basis. Look at me. 
this, this should make sense to us. This should make sense. Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much pain? Why do we have to balance good things that happen with bad things that happen? Why? Why do we lock our doors at night? Why do we have locks on our cars from our keychain? Why do we have locks on our door and then locks above the door and then a security system on top of that and then dogs to protect that? Why? Because there's freaks in the world, okay? There's evil. There's sons of disobedience. There's a devil who's at work in those people. <laughs> Mark Driscoll always says, for all the people, all the people that believe uh, human beings are born naturally good, really, then keep your doors unlocked. You think people are born naturally good? Go ahead, keep. Let's test that theology. Keep your doors unlocked. See what happens. This makes sense of the way things are. Atheism, they have, no, they have no way to deal with evil. They have no way to deal with it. And as soon as an, Number one, as soon as an atheist brings up the question of evil, just uh, hold on, what's your position on evil? How do you even have a standard for what evil is? Because... According to atheism, I should be able to take what's yours because of the survival of the fittest. If you can't beat me up, I should be able to take it. I'm more evolved than you. Moron, leaving your iPhone on the table. I'll take it. It's mine. You have de-evolved. Right? That's what we believe. We believe in de-evolution. People are actually turning into monkeys. Okay? We're getting so far away from Christ, we're actually turning into monkeys. That's the truth. We didn't evolve from them. We're turning into them. Because we've walked so, we continue to suppress the truth, suppress the truth, suppress the truth. <clears throat> so, follows the course of this world, follows Satan, and then look at the next one. Oops. <clears throat> Among whom we all, say all, we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh. In the passions of our flesh. That's the way of the world. Right? If it feels good, do it. Don't deny it. Just do it. Right? Voyeurism, hedonism, just do it. If it feels good, do it. It's working out real well. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This... Heart scares me here. <clears throat> How do you tell a dead man he's dead? How does a dead man stop acting like a dead man? I mean, if he's following the blind, if he's, if he's just living according to the passions of his flesh, man, it just feels good to look at pornography. I just want to do it. I can't control myself. That's what I'm going to do. It feels good to take advantage of women and take and not give in a self-sacrificial relationship like the Bible talks about. It feels good to cheat my neighbor out of something. It feels good to cheat in a business transaction. How do you, what do you do to a dead man? How do you talk him into living right? Hey, man, dead man, come to church with me, dead man. Come to church with me, dead man, and then you'll learn how to be good. Oh, bring your dead kids to our church, and then you'll learn how to be good dead kids. No matter, <laughs> no matter how a dead man changes his behavior, he's still dead. You can be dead and sober. You can be dead and obedient-ish. You can be dead and a nice neighbor. Look at this next verse, or this next part of the verse. And we're by nature, this is talking about us, before Christ, it's talking about every single person before Christ, by nature, children of wrath. Children of wrath. Of wrath, God's wrath being poured out on heaven against the sons of disobedience. We are children of wrath. Now, listen to me. This is huge. This might revolutionize the way you think of sin right here. Sin is not just what you do. Sin is who you are. Sin is an identity. Child 
of wrath. Who you are, not just what you do. That statement changed my life. There's a novel out by Flannery O'Connor. And in it, she makes this statement. She said about this, about this uh, I can't remember his name, but he said, he knew he didn't want anything to do with Jesus and he knew to avoid Jesus. The easiest way to avoid Jesus was just to avoid sin. I don't want to deal with that grace stuff. I don't have to deal with a savior. I don't have to deal with God. I don't have to deal with Jesus. So I'll just be good. I'll be really, really good. And if I avoid sin, I can avoid the need of a savior. I live my life like this. Growing up, I was an athlete. I didn't drink. I didn't cuss. I didn't have sex. And I had these people over here. We called them loadies. Okay? That's what we called them. All the people that got high every weekend and got drunk, we called them loadies. And I said, those are the bad people. They wear the black hat. I get to wear the white hat. Right? Separate them. Good people, or good people, bad people. So that's what religion does. Bad people, good people. I didn't realize sin is an identity I possessed. I was born a child of wrath. It wasn't just the sins that I commit on a daily basis that condemned me to hell. It was who I was in my nature. I was a child of wrath. I deserve hell and torment and judgment. That's what I deserved in God's justice. That's what I deserved. <clears throat> Ouch. Ouch. I don't want to hear that, right? Suppress that. You better not be talking about my kids right now. You better not be talking about my kids. Little Johnny, I know he's nice and cute. Child of wrath is what Paul says. Listen, this is what it did to me. This is what it did. When I realized that, when that dropped, all hope for rehab rehabilitation was gone. Listen to that. How do you rehab a dead person? How do you rehab a dead person? Come on, buddy. Let's, your joints are looking a little tight. Let's work that out. How many times have you been to church and you heard four, five, six steps to get a good life? You can't rehab a dead person. Two steps to freedom from stress. Three steps to whatever, financial prosperity. You can't rehab a dead person. Oh, you got this problem with gossip? All right, let's, let's, let's work through some three or four steps to, get, to stop gossiping, to stop lusting, to stop looking at, that, looking at pornography. Let's work through that. You can't rehab a dead person. This is why the bad news of the gospel is so important. If I don't understand the bad news, I might be tempted to give a dead man 12 steps to follow. That's like throwing a dead man into the pool and saying, all right, we're going to teach him how to swim. Here we go. He's, Do this first. All right, this is how you get a good wife. I'm going to tell you how to... We teach foolish things. This is why every single week you come to Sacred City, you're going to hear the gospel. Because it's the only thing that changes us. It's the only thing that brings the dead to life. It's the only thing that can do the work. It's the only thing that can multiply churches. It's the only thing that can build God's kingdom. It's the only thing we can build our life on. It's the only parenting strategy that actually raises kids to love and worship God. It's it. It's the only thing you can build your marriage on. Freak. You can go read some David Gray books. You can go read some... Red hot monogamy. You can go read these ridiculous marriage books. Men are from wherever and women are from wherever. The gospel will change your marriage. The gospel. I love all these marriage books. Pile them up. I can tell you what they all say. This is how you manipulate your spouse to get them to do what you want them to do. Every one of them. You want to have more sex? Spend some time in the kitchen. Manipulator. They all say that. It's ridiculous. How about the gospel? Christ laid down his life for you. If you believe it, lay down your life for your wife. Don't come home from work and put demands on the table. Lay down your life for your wife. You're tired. Play with the kids. Lay down your life for your kids. 
The gospel does that in you. You don't have to suck it up and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Christ did it for us. Man, this is hard work in here. This is hard work in here because this is, nobody believes they're dead. <laughs> nobody believes they're dead. Nobody believes that I'm, yeah, you know what? I think I do deserve hell, actually. Yeah, I think I'm a really terrible person. Now, you have to convince, the Holy Spirit does it, but we have to convince each other. Nine times out of ten in a missional community, when you're trying to convince someone to believe the gospel, the problem is not that they believe that Christ died for them. The problem is they, don't, they think they deserved it. They don't believe they were dead. That's the problem. I believe I had a rough upbringing. God should have died for me. He owed me. I didn't have money growing up. Christ owes me his death. God should have proved his love for me because he didn't prove it to me by giving me good parents. Nine times out of ten, we believe we weren't dead. <gasps> dead? Dead? I was raised in church. I was acing Bible quizzes, man. Sick, maybe. I was kind of disobedient sometimes. I was maybe sick. I needed some rehab. That's it. Because we don't believe we're dead, we're okay going to a church and getting a few steps, practical steps to go put in our place and make our life better. Because we don't believe we're dead. If we're convinced that we're dead, there's only one thing that will fix it. There's only one thing. <sighs> Listen, in a gospel, this is what we are. We're a gospel-centered ministry. All right, this is one of the things that makes us a little different. We're a gospel-centered ministry. And you are not you're not going to change. You're not going to grow until you can admit that you are dead outside of Christ. That you are dead. That you are dead outside of Christ. Because this is why. Until you admit that you're truly dead outside of Christ, you'll never know how loved you are in Christ. Just like Sam. He's, he's not going to appreciate You don't have cancer. Cool. I'm pretty sure I knew that. He's never going to get it until he gets the bad news. I think you've got cancer. Or you do have cancer. But then when he gets the good report, it makes sense to him. You want to prove my point? <clears throat> Why don't you do this? This is the easiest way to do it. If you've got a, a friend who's, who's like I was, um, and struggles, and still am sometimes, a real religious person who does the right things, and he obeys, and he walks the line and does the right thing. This is what you do. Um, point out their sin to them. Point out their sin and watch them explode. Watch them melt down. They can't handle it. They start listening. This is what happens. This is what happens. You get a person like that, you say, hey, man, I, I think that really was, was kind of that was kind of a proud thing you did. It seemed like really proudful or prideful to do that. <laughs> Watch them. They start listing off the resume. What do you mean? I, I'm a good person. What do you mean? I, I go to church. I mean, I don't cuss. I don't drink. I've been going to church for 15 years. I know tons of scripture. What do you mean you think I'm proud? I think you're proud. <laughs> Their system crashes, man. They can't handle it. They can't handle having their sin pointed out to them. Because they don't think they're dead. They don't really believe that they were dead. Guys, what we're about to read in here, Christ didn't die like as an overstatement to prove a point. Like he could have just been wounded. Christ had to die because we were dead. Let's keep reading. So that's the bad news, okay? Can we handle that? That's the bad news. Listen to me. If you're in a missional community, if we're ever pressing in on you like we call it and trying to gospel you, the, 
one of the first things we're going to confront you on is your own sin. Are you a product of your environment? A little bit. Yes, you've been affected by the sins done to you, 100%. Your parents' sins against you are real. They are wounds. We will address that. We will talk with that. We will mourn with, mourn with you. We will weep with you. But there will come a time when you have to be confronted with the fact that if Jesus Christ would have took the wounds of your parents the same ones you took, he would have responded differently. He would have responded perfectly. He would have took those wounds and said, I love you, God. I will not turn my back. I will walk in obedience to you. Christ had an imperfect father. Christ had an imperfect mother on this earth as well. He was sinned against, but yet remained sinless. So in a moment, when we're counseling, when we're gospeling, when we're working through something, you have to be confronted with the fact that you chose, I don't care if you were 3 or 15 or 18 or 29 or 30, you chose to be sinful in that moment. You chose to harbor bitterness in your heart against your parents. You chose to punish them and harden your heart and say, I'm not going to allow you to hurt me anymore, so I'm going to internalize everything. You chose to do that in that moment, and that was sin. And when you harden your heart against your parents, you harden your heart against the Father. You have to be confronted with that. You were dead in your sin. When we admit that, when we're confronted with that, then we can hear the good news of the gospel. <clears throat> Verse 4. But God. Let's just, hold on, hold on. Let's just start in chapter or Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, every one of us in here, no one was born good. We've all been born sons of disobedience. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of their body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, everyone but God. Now listen, that's the... that's. That's the sexiest butt in all the Bible right there, okay? I'm going to tell you that. That's the best looking butt in all the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, oh yes, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is scandalous. How many have seen a zombie movie? Right? How many of you watch those zombie movies and go, I love that guy. I would lay my life down for that guy. Right? Zombies are disgusting. I can't watch them. All, right? I, all that blood and gore and black goo, I can't watch it. Okay? I get freaked out by them. I can't watch it. Listen, that, that's, that's what I think of. That's what I visualize when I read this passage. God so in love with us zombies that he sends his perfect, innocent, spotless son to come lay down his life for us in our place. By grace, you've been saved. Took our place, took our sin, died our death. And then look at verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And every one of us should memorize this right here. Eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. I hope you see what I see. I hope you see what Paul's saying right here. How did you come alive? How did you come alive? How were you brought from dead men walking spiritually alive, sons and daughters of God, raised and seated in Christ in the heavenly places with a future and a hope and a destiny. How were you made alive? Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. When Christ got up out of that grave, God the Father made us alive in Him. You didn't contribute. You didn't contribute. God did it. God made us alive. God, just like He spoke to Lazarus and He said, get up out of the grave. We respond. God did it for us. We didn't cooperate. God did it. He made us alive in Christ. And I love it. Uh, Verse 7. So that. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable great riches of his grace. Why did he do it? To show us grace. Why did he do it? To show off his goodness. Why did he do it? To show off his grace. He is the only one can bring the dead to life. God's the only one can do that. He's the only one that can change our heart. To show off his grace. This is our identity. This is who we are. We are a gospel-centered people created to live our life with gospel-centered rhythms. We all go, oh man, God made us alive. I didn't do anything. Great, okay? That's awesome. Now, so that means I get to go do whatever I want? That's what the question is always. Like, so I can just go party and go do what I want. I can just run away from God or you know, what's the balance between good works and not, do I, you know, what, 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 what's the balance there? How do I do? Look, he answers the question right here. Look, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've been made alive to show off his grace. You've been made alive to show off his grace. You've been made alive to show off his grace. That's the gospel. Your rhythms that flow out of that, how you lay your life down for one another, they'll know you by your fruit, they'll know you by your love for one another. That's just showing off the grace of God. Just showing off the grace of God. My good works don't add to my salvation. My good works don't earn my salvation. My good works are from my salvation. They're from it, they're fruit. We have been created for good works. This is just another way of saying the gospel will produce fruit in your life. If the gospel has brought you from dead to death to life, if it has truly taken your heart of stone and made it into a heart of flesh, you will be shaped by it. So I'm going to ask you tonight, what's, what's the hardest part for you? What's the hardest part for you? Is the hardest part admitting that you are really dead? Admitting that you really can't earn your way back to God? Admitting that you really can't pay Him back for everything He's done? That you didn't contribute to your salvation? Is that the hardest part for you? Or is the hardest part for you realizing that you are worse than you think? You are worse than you ever thought possible. But Christ loved you all the more and He died for dead men. Think of Jesus Christ. Father, they know not what they do. Forgive them. They're dead. Their eyes are blinded in their sin. They're nailing me to the cross. They're doing what dead men do. They're suppressing the truth. They're resisting the truth. And Christ, he said he loved them, and then he loved them to the last. He loved them to the end. He defeats death by dying. He gets victory over death by dying our death. The perfect God for us.
Only God can make Christ attractive to you. Only God can make Christianity attractive to you. Come and die. Lay down your life so you can pick it back up again. Lay down your life. Only God can do that. Father, I pray tonight for everyone in this room. Father, I pray that you would bring the dead to life. Those with a hardened heart, those who've been doing the religious thing for a long time, maybe they've been going to church for a long time, they've been playing the game, they've been doing the thing. Father, I pray that you would raise the dead to life. That you would call them forth tonight. I pray that you would do that. That they would be converted. They would believe the gospel. That they're worse than they ever thought. But at the same time, simultaneously, more loved than they ever hoped. What kind of story is this? What kind of God dies for his enemies? What kind of God would die for dead men? Father, I pray that our hearts, that we would, be, we would have a freedom in our missional communities to admit our sin, to be open with the depths of our depravity. We wouldn't try to cover it from our brothers and hide it from our sisters. We wouldn't try to hide it and try to put on the show like we're better and that we've got more faith and we've got more understanding. Father, you can dress up a dead person, but they're still dead. Let us admit that apart from you and away from you, we are dead in our sin. That that death still clings to us many times. Those dead sins, those, the ways of a dead man, they still cling to us. Father, I pray that we would take a look at the gospel. That it would do something in our heart. It would do something in our affections. That we would be changed by it the apostle talks about. We would be changed and that gospel would do like it says in, in verse 10 and like it says in Colossians, that gospel would produce fruit in us, that we would freely lay down our lives for one another, that we'd freely serve and lay down our life for your mission, that our life is not our own because you bought us, you purchased us, we were dead, you own us. We would be dead and going to hell if it wasn't for you. Every breath that we breathe for the rest of our existence belongs to you. You own us. You are our owner, Father. You are our Father. You've adopted us. You command us. We are slaves to you. I pray that we believe that. When we walk around like we're entitled, when we walk around like you owe us something, when we walk around like we're too busy and that we've got needs and we've got all these things, remind us that we were dead and you saved us by sheer grace. What rights do a, does a dead person have? Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do. You would communicate this to us. We would stop fighting. We would stop resisting this truth we would give in to the Holy Spirit. I pray as we take communion, as we take part in the Lord's Supper, that only believers would come forth to the table, only those who admit they were dead in their sin, but Christ raised them to new life, that the table is guarded, that the table, Father God, is only for believers. I pray that as we take part, that you would communicate that grace to us. That literally the elements, Father, they would come into us and they would communicate truth, they would communicate grace, they would remind us of the cost and the price and the depth to which you love us. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your one and only Son. Jesus, thank you for dying for dead men. In Jesus' name, amen.